you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let me encourage you to find Hebrews chapter number 13. Hebrews chapter number 13. For those of you that are watching online or listening by way of podcast, thanks be unto God for listening today. God bless each one of you, and I hope you really have a great week and a happy Thanksgiving. We have taken 10 weeks to go all the way through this uh, wonderful letter to the Hebrews. Now remember, Hebrews are Jewish Christians. They're Jewish believers, and they're having a difficult time. Persecution, hard times, financial struggles, uh, problems in their families, divorce. I mean, there's all kind of things that are happening inside this local church, and they are very discouraged. And what they want to do is they want to leave because of the persecution. They want to walk away from the church, and they want to go back to Judaism, which is a dead religion. And he told us here in the scriptures, he says, listen, Jesus is more excellent than anything you can ever imagine. He's more excellent than the prophets. He's more excellent than the tabernacle. He's more excellent than the sacrifice. He's more excellent than the priest. He is the greatest thing that's ever happened to this planet. And because he's the greatest thing that ever happened to this planet, he's the one and only way to get to heaven. So there's no sense in leaving Christianity because Christianity is where truth is located. Christianity is truth. And he's made his way all the way through, giving us example after example how Jesus is greater than all these things, how he's more excellent than anything you can imagine, until he gets to chapter 11. When he gets to chapter 11, he switches gears, and he's getting ready to close. Chapter 11 is an important chapter because it is a chapter that deals with faith. It says that Jesus Christ is more excellent through faith. When you come to Christ, you come to Christ through faith, and it's by grace that you come through that faith. And so he encourages them in that respect. And then in chapter number 12, he is encouraging us through all of those witnesses that have gone on before us, all those individuals that have, that have showed us and demonstrated us in the Old Testament uh, faith and how wonderful their faith uh, was it exemplified it with us in chapter number 12 by going a step further in saying that we are encompassed with such a great cloud of witnesses so he's encouraging the church in chapter 12 and then in chapter number 13 he closes it all down and he exhorts them he is going to exhort them and give them some just really simple practical advice until he can get to him, to them. His desire was to get to this church. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be with them. And he says, until I get to be with you, here are some practical things that I want you to work on in the closing of my letter. I, I would say this as your pastor. This would be, I could not have planned a better, and I didn't know it was going to work out this way. I just know I was going to be preaching through the book of Hebrews. But I can't think of a better closing for my departure and my return for you to work on these simple things as well. There are four things that I want you to notice here in this passage of Scripture. Four sections of practical thoughts that motivate us to live in the world, but not of the world. And things to work on while your pastor's gone. And while he's working on these things, you can be working on these things as well. Can I show them to you today? Let me show them to you, and we'll work through the text together uh, this morning. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice in verse 1 through 8, the writer gives Christian counsel. Christian counsel. 
Uh, I believe it was Paul that wrote this letter. It's got his marks all over it. I, I think it's obvious in my mind that he is the writer of this letter. And when you look at the closings of his letters, they seem to be all the same way. And here there is no difference in this closing letter. But we find that in his closing letter, he wants to give them some good, solid, biblical Christian counsel. Uh, many times when individuals are looking for counselors, they'll call and they'll say, Pastor, can you recommend a good Christian counselor? And I'll give them a recommendation who does that full time. Here in this passage of Scripture, we see the Apostle Paul being a Christian counselor, and he is going to counsel the church in these in practically six areas, and very practical at that. Let me show them to you if I could very quickly. Number one, the first area of counsel he gives is in the area of love. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, let brotherly love continue. Then verse 2, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Here in this passage of Scripture, he says, the very first thing I want to counsel you on is your love. Until I get to you, let brotherly love continue. Now remember, he's writing to the church, and if he's writing to the church asking them to work on this, there had to be a problem. In regards to this, selfishness can oftentimes set in a church, and we, become, we can become greedy and very selfish and have a lack of this type of special love. The kind of love that he's talking about, let brotherly love continue. Uh, that is the word phileo. And where we get our English word Philadelphia. As a matter of fact, it is a Greek word, Philadelphia. Philadelphia originally meant to love someone with a, a blood brother or blood sister, to love them that way, to love them as your own blood. What he's doing is he's encouraging the church to love each other as true family members. Dear brothers and sisters, if you're a part of Maysville Baptist Church, we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we are called to a life of love, love one for another. One testimony about this church that reigns true. Everywhere I go, Maysville Baptist Church is such a unique place because it has a very special love for people. You have that reputation. May I say that that continue? Why? Because he says in verse number 2, he says that love that we have for other people could be us entertaining angels. The love that we have for strangers could be entertaining angels tonight. There are going to be guests that come into our church, and we've got guests in here now. I don't know if anybody wants to make themselves known as being an angel or not, but one of you could be. And, uh, and a wife hits her husband and goes, it ain't you, honey, it ain't you. <laughs> but tonight, we've got to treat those guests that come in, in here as though we were entertaining angels. Let brotherly love continue. That's the first counsel. Counsel number two, found in verse number three, and that has to deal with their sympathy. Their sympathy. Look at what he says in verse number three. He says, remember them that are in bonds as bonds with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourself also in the body. He says, the body of Christ suffers some adversity, and that adversity at times has led to imprisonment. What he's saying is their imprisonment has been because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, remember them. He already spoke about this once over in chapter number 10, verses 33 through 34. He talked about how they sympathized with them. And now he's telling them, remember that. Remember to keep sympathizing with those that are in prison. The way that it translates today is that we too ought to be sympathetic to those that are in prison. You say, well, they're, they're doing their time. You do, the, you do the crime, you do the time. Yes, I completely agree with that. You must do the time if you're going to do the crime. However, we must also not forget them like the Word of God says. Why? Because if we don't reach out to them and show them the love of Jesus Christ, I promise you a false religion will. 
As a matter of fact, did you know that the fastest growing religion in prison is Islam? You know the reason why? Is because nobody else wants to interact with them. Nobody else wants to be engaged with them. I thank God for our women's prison ministry that uh, takes place here. And I pray that if you're not involved, you'll get involved with that. And I'm asking God to raise up somebody uh, to do a men's prison ministry that will get into these prisons and will combat the false god of Islam and will get the true gospel into the, into the prisons. Uh, dear brothers and sisters, he says, be sympathetic with these. Sympathize with them, if you would, in regards to those that are in prison. Number three, here's the third one. i got to hurry. The third counsel that he gives is, gives is in the area of marriage. In the area of marriage. Again, look at verse number three. Notice what he says. He says in verse three, or excuse me, verse four, he says, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. This exhortation is going towards sexual purity. That's what he's speaking of here. Uh, I've had people say to me through the years, I don't see anything wrong with living together before, you have married, uh, before you're married. Or I don't believe that anything's wrong with having sex before you're married. Now listen, I don't want to be dogmatic. I'm not trying to be on a soapbox. I, I, I'm just trying to pastor and, and just point people to the Word of God. Here's my only question with that. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about it? Because I promise you what culture says about it is very different than what the Bible says about it. And if we hold to the Bible being absolute truth, then we ought to let the Bible change us instead of us trying to change the Bible. It should not be an excuse to look at the Bible and go, well, that's just archaic stuff. No, it's not archaic stuff. It's relevant for today. And because it's relevant, what God says about marriage is very important. As a matter of fact, he has a lot to say in Scripture about marriage, in particular sexual purity. He said something in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8 about sexual purity. He said something in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 9, and again in chapter 7, verse 36 and 37 about sexual purity. And here in this passage in Hebrews, once again, he says a great deal about sexual purity. Purity. In fact, there are three things worth noting about this. The first one is that we are to honor marriage. Do you see what it says in the text? Notice if you have your pen. He tells us there in the scripture, marriage is honorable. I would underline that word honorable. Why? Because he's saying that we are to honor marriage. It's the Greek word timios, and it means to hold something with a deep respect. The Bible is saying here to honor marriage, we must keep this marriage, a biblical marriage, and exercise our sexuality within that marriage and not exercise it without the marriage. Well, he's talking against, if you would, of this issue. He's speaking against having sex outside of marriage. Keep sex inside of marriage. Premarital sex dishonors God. Again, I'm not trying to be dogmatic. I'm just pointing this is what the Scripture's saying. The Scripture says premarital sex dishonors God, number one. Number two, the second thing. We are to keep our marriages sexually pure. Notice what he says again in the text. He says the mar that marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. I would underline that. Why? Because he's speaking here that we are to keep the marriage bed sexually pure. That is, no extramarital uh, sex is to pollute our marriage or to pollute, to pollute the marriage. Uh, they are to be undefiled. They're to be pure in a religious sense, in a moral sense. He's saying that you've got to have some form of spiritual equilibrium when it comes to sex, and when it comes, God's given it to us. It's called 
marriage. And so when culture comes along and they want to tinker with marriage and redefine it, this, that, and the other, we've got to let God's word be true and everybody else a liar. Regardless of what the culture says marriage is, the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman, and underneath that umbrella is where sexual fulfillment takes place. It's the only place where reproduction of the planet can take place. That is one of the gifts that God has given to us. And then the third thing he says is just simply this in the text. God will punish sexual sin. Notice the text again. He tells us there, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Well, it's very easy when we think about what adulterers are. That is someone that's unfaithful to their spouse, both male and female, But what about this word whoremongers? What in the world does it mean? In its original meaning, it meant a male prostitute. That was its original meaning, a whoremonger. It is coming from the Greek word pornos, where we get our English word pornography. It come more to mean the generalization of sexual promiscuity, in particular immorality, in the arena of fornication. He's speaking of those that are involved in such perversions as homosexuality, sex with boys, bestiality, affairs, running around on your spouse, uh, anything, any type of sex that's outside the general guidelines of marriage. That is where a husband and a wife come together and the Bible says that is undefiled. It's a hard message. Can I get somebody to say amen, preacher? Thank you. Number five. Here's the fifth one. Verse five and six. He changes gears there after he gives them counsel in love and sympathy and marriage. And now he wants to show them satisfaction. Here's some counsel on being satisfied with what God has given you. In verse 5 and 6, he's going to exhort them against the greed, uh, against greed and against uh, uh, money of of that type of of security. And he just simply says in this, look at what he says in verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I'll never leave thee, nor forsake it, no, nor forsake thee. Verse 6. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. He's saying, be satisfied with what you have. Let your conversation, your attitude reflect that you appreciate what God has given you, and you're thankful for what you got. Uh, When we come to church, we ought to be thankful for what we have here. We've got something that a lot of churches don't have. Uh, We've got stability. We've got care. We've got love. We've got unity. And the devil hates that. The The devil would love to come in and start disunity. And he'd love to do so by talking about the pastors leaving. Again, I've already said my stake on this, but the Bible is very, very clear. We ought to be satisfied with where we're at, what God has given us. Now, he's not talking about being satisfied with attendance. We ought to continue to hunger and thirst to reach one more for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the Great Commission. But concerning our individual uh, persons, we should be satisfied with what the Lord has given us. Uh, We should not want and desire something that our neighbor has. Uh, We should be satisfied with what God has given us. And the Bible says this. He says, and remember, God's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to meet every need that you have. Period. As a matter of fact, I love the Greek here because the Greek brings out a double negative. It's saying never, 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 never. Never, ever, ever will God ever leave you. He will never forsake you. Uh, The word leave there means to, uh, it's what happens when your shoe becomes untied. Your shoelace becomes loose. It's the same word. He says, look, when you've got the gospel shoes on you, they'll never come untied. He's got you. 
He goes on to say this. He not only will never leave you, he said he'll never forsake you. That is, he'll never, ever leave you. He's never going to leave you. You think God's abandoned you? Do you think God's left you? He hadn't. He's carrying you through this storm. He's carrying you through this difficulty. He's carrying you through this hard time. When I was a kid, Catherine, uh, I went to Thompson Elementary in Gadsden, Alabama. It was a brand new school. They had moved over from the Cathy. It was a Catholic school. And they transferred and opened up this brand new Thompson Elementary. I went to Cathy, And then I went over to, to Thompson. And I can remember being at Thompson. And school let out one day. And all the kids were out there getting on the bus. And all, I was in the car rider line. My mom picked me up. She worked just right up the road at the local, uh, uh, the local uh, 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 nursing home. I'll get it out here in a minute. And she was the dietitian there at the nursing home. And I can remember standing there, and all my friends got in their cars, and off they went, and cars just lined up and all. Well, those cars started getting thinner and thinner until no, there were no more cars left. And I was standing there, just me and my teacher. And then other teachers went walking to their car to get in their car to leave. And then the principal came out, Abe, and locked the school door. And could out, come out. So get the picture. You got the principal, Shane, and his teacher. I just started crying. I was just a little bitty fella. I just started crying. My teacher looked down. She said, what's wrong, son? I said, my mama's forgot about me. She ain't coming to get me. I'm going to have to find a new home. I mean, I was tore out of the frame. Now, we had an Oldsmobile. It was yellow. It looked like a, looked like a big old banana. And you could see that thing coming a mile away. Well, I'm wiping the tears out of my eyes, and the principal's tapping me on the shoulder. And she says, look over that hill right there, Shane. And I look over that hill, and guess what I saw? I saw the banana car coming down the road. It was my mama. And she was burning up the roads, Ward. I'm telling you what, she absolutely, she come in sideways into that school and come up, park. she jumped out of the car and ran over to me and snatched me up and hugged me and said, I'm so, so sorry, I'm sorry. I got tied up at work. She said, I did not forget about you, Shane. I will never, ever, ever forget about you. I could never do that. In that same way, that's the way God feels about you. That's the way he feels about you. He will never, ever, ever leave you, John. He will never, ever, ever forsake you, Marie. You are with him and have been with him this whole time. And he's carried you through. And the desire of John's heart, I was just talking to him just a minute ago. He said, I just wanted to come back to church. And God's given him the desire of his heart as he's in church today. God said he'd never leave you. He says, be satisfied with what you have. And then he says, here's a sixth thing very quickly. He gives them counsel on respect. Respect. What do you mean? Look at verse 7 and 8 very quickly. He says, remember them which have the rule over you, who has spoken to you uh, the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday uh, and today and forever. And I want you to get your pens because I want you to look at this. This is very important. He's saying, I want you to respect those that have gone before you, your pastors and your teachers. Respect them. But I want you to know what happened to them. Look at what the Bible says in verse 7. He says, remember them which have rule over you. That's easy enough. That's respect. Here's the next one. Who have spoken unto you the word of God. The word spoken here is in the past tense. There's a reason why scholars say, and I have a tendency to agree with this because he's going to talk about alive pastors here in just a few minutes. He's talking about pastors that have died for their faith. Teachers that have died for their faith. He says, respect their lives. Respect them. 
And he says, not only do you want, I want you to respect them, he says, I want you to follow their faith. Not their destination, but their faith. They may have died for their faith, but they were, they were willing to die for their faith. And you need to have that kind of faith that you're willing to die for Jesus Christ. Notice he says, considering the end of their conversation. The conversation is their life, how they finished out. He's saying this, these individuals before you finished strong. Ma'am, listen, it's not about how you start that counts. It's about how you finish. And he says, look at those individuals that finish, that finish strong. He pointed to a whole bunch of them in chapter number 11. And he alluded to them again in chapter number 12. Here we see another uh, inclusion, if you would, in chapter 13. Remember them and respect the life that they had and follow their faith. Have strong faith like they had. All right, here's the second thing very quickly. Not only did he give Christian counsel, he shifted gears very quickly and gave them a Christian creed. Christian creed, that's verses 9 through 13. A Christian creed. Now, a creed is a system of Christian beliefs. I have divided their creed up into three categories. Let me show them to you very quickly. Take this down quick. Number one, uh, accept proper doctrine. Accept proper doctrine. Notice what he says in verse number nine. He tells us in the text there, he says very quickly, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. The word diverse means all different kinds. The word strange means foreign. He says, do not be carried away with all these different kinds of foreign doctrines that exist in your culture today. They were all different kinds that were out there, just like there are all different kinds today. He says, don't be carried away. Don't get distracted on that. The word carried away means to take your attention off of. I am so shocked and surprised today about the number of born-again children of God, and I'm talking about Baptist believers, that will take their mind off the preaching of the Word of God, will take them, the, the, they'll take their eyes off of Jesus and the Word, and they'll put it upon some preacher. And you'll have some preacher out there that says... If you'll just send me $25, I'll send you this prayer rag I snotted all over, and it'll help everything you got. I'm concerned. When did they come see you in the hospital? When did they get down on their knees and beg God not to kill you and to spare your life? Oh, listen to me, brothers and sisters. I'm not making a mockery out of prayer. I'm saying don't be distracted by the whims of the devil. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Word of God. Bless God, if it don't line up with this, it ain't true. And by the way, you ought to have a pastor that believes the Word of God, that loves the Word of God, and that wants to say, look at the Word of God. I, bless, I, man, I, I get a funny feeling inside when I hear one of them preachers get up there and say, let me give you ten reasons how to be financially successful from the pulpit. God have mercy that somebody just stand behind a sacred desk and to try to preach how you might be financially free when Jesus is the answer for everything you need. That's why they got rid of pulpits. No pulpits in those churches. And yet, then preachers have lace on their underwear. <laughs> Number two, he says, accept proper doctrine. The second thing, reject legalism. Reject legalism. Look at what he says here in the text. He says, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Man, I'd underline that. He says, your heart ought to be established. Why? Here it is. Look at it. Not with meats which have not profited them, that have been occupied therein. You know what he's referring to? The old covenant, the old law. He said, them, that meat didn't save anybody. He says, that meat the priest would put on the altar, and then they would take a portion of it, and they would eat. That didn't save anybody. They weren't saved because of that. 
No, you're not saved by legalism. You see, the Jews, they had all these rules and regulations. You got to do this. 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 Listen, Jesus took the rule book and said, gone. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man will come to the Father but by me. You won't get to heaven by church membership. You won't get to heaven by uh, going through a confirmation class, by keeping some list of rules. You're not going to do that. No, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And by the way, when you come to Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that, that you're going to be legalistic. That is to say that uh, you've got to have your hair so short in order to get to heaven <laughs> on that. Or you've got to wear socks to church in order to get to heaven. <laughs> or if you're really going to be a Christian, you've got to wear a belt with your britches. Y'all remember those days? God, have mercy on our souls. We ought to live with a heart full of grace. So what does that mean? That means I don't care who walks in those back doors. When they come in, it don't care how they're dressed. We ought to love them in Jesus' name. Now, I will say this. There ought to be something said about some modesty. Can I get a witness right there? When you come to church, you better have all your parts covered. That's for men and women, by the way. I like it when I get the ladies to say amen. (laughs) Reject legalism. Accept proper doctrine. Here's number three. Here it is. Embrace the altar. Verses 10 through 14. Embrace the altar. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. What's he saying there? He's saying those individuals in the tabernacle, they came by the law. It's not that way anymore. We have an altar. Who's the altar? Jesus. We have an altar. His name is Jesus. And then he's just going to work his way down in verse 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 talking about Jesus. You read it when you get home. That'd be a good thing to study when you get home. He's saying embrace the altar. Number three. Here's a third one very quickly. Verses 15 through 19. He's going to shift gears now. He's talked about Christian counsel, giving them some Christian counsel. He's talked about their Christian creed. And now he's going to drill down. He's going to say, now let me talk about your Christian conduct. Your Christian conduct. Notice what he says here in the text. He says, in regards to their Christian conduct, in this section, the writer points out that there are several aspects to their conduct that needs to be addressed. What are they? Number one. The way they praise. Look at what he says in verse 15. He goes on to say in verse 15, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. He's saying because Jesus is the altar that we come to, and we come to the altar of Jesus, and we receive forgiveness of sin, he says then the result of that ought to be praise to God. We praise God. And he says, in this praise, look at what he says there. It is a sacrifice of praise to God continually. Jesus died once. We pray continually, repetitively. When you got up this morning, you, you ought to praise God for giving you get up this morning and ate breakfast this morning. I had some, what I have for breakfast? I had oatmeal and apples and cinnamon. Oh, and it wasn't that old kind that you just rip open, put in there, and pour the water. Man, I'd really, I boiled the water, had the oats, cut up the apple, had the, man, it was so good. I said, thank you, Jesus for this wonderful oatmeal that I hate to eat. Thank you for it. Praise. Offer it up continually. Number two, he says thanksgiving. Look at what he says. He builds on it. Not only praise, but also thanksgiving. That is, he says, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. What's his name? Can you say it one more time? What's his name? Thanking Jesus. When's the last time you thanked Jesus? 
Man, I thank Jesus so very much for my uh, salvation. He says we ought to thank his name. Number three. He says when you praise and thanks, it's going to change your action. Look what he says in verse 16. He goes on. He says, but do good and communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Again, he throws this in the sacrifice category and says, it's hard, but I'm telling you, when you praise God and when you thank God, there is going to be some actions that take place. And that actions is, number one, you're going to do good. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. How do people praise the Father in heaven? By seeing your good deeds. What's a good deed? Here's one yesterday. I was at the hospital visiting. And as I was at the hospital visiting yesterday, I, I got in the, in the uh, uh, elevator and I saw this guy coming through the door and I got in the elevator first. And, and it was one of those deals where I knew he was huffing it trying to get to the elevator and I knew the door was going to close. You ever had that little inside you say, man, if I close this door, he ain't going to make it and I'll get to where I need to get and it'll be so much better. You ever had that feeling? Don't lie. You, I'm telling you, know you have you want to hit that but I did yesterday I wanted to hit that button so bad and I just said Lord I'm not gonna do it I hit the other button what does the other button do it doesn't close the door was it <laughs> it keeps the door open then why'd you do that the man's obviously he's got somebody he's coming to see and he's in a hurry to get there and so I held the door for him and he come in and he said thank you thank you thank God Oh, listen, the Bible says, let people see your good deeds. And in seeing your good deeds, let them point to God, point to Jesus. Actions. Watch this. Here's a fourth one. Uh, words. Verse 16. He says, in the communication, forget not. He's don't, don't forget to use your lips. Here, watch this. We ought to be a witness for Jesus Christ with our lips, but with, our, with our life. Excuse me. We ought to be a, an example of Jesus Christ with our life but also with our lips. We ought to use our lips. Not just use our life, but use our words. That's what he's saying. He says, look, uh, in your Christian conduct, praise God, thank God. That'll give out some actions that'll do good to people. And in doing good, use your words. Don't forget to use your words, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. He says, sometimes it's hard to praise God. Sometimes it's hard to look and see the glass half full. Sometimes it's difficult when you're sick and the, you, mama's sick. And, and goodness, when mama's sick, ain't nobody happy. I mean, everybody's upset. And mama's upset that she's sick. The kids are upset that mama's sick. Daddy can't do nothing right. And then the, the bottom line is, it's hard to thank God and praise God during those times. But the Bible says do it. Use your words. Number five. He moves from words to obedience. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says... Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. Now I want you to catch this because this is obviously a real challenge the church was suffering in the first century. And I'm going to be honest with you. There's no church immune from it. We, we have a tendency and can suffer from this as well if we're not careful. He's talking again about our Christian conduct. And he's talking about being obedient to your pastor. That's what he's referring to. Look at the text here. Watch. Watch. He says, obey them that have rule over you. These are alive pastors that are currently actively pastoring the church. And he says that we, you are to obey them. He's talking about fellowship. Fellowship. Obey them. The word obey there means to be convinced by one's own life. That, that is to say... 
I've been here five years. You ought to be able to look at my life now and see whether or not that I tr- do I truly love God. You ought to be able to look at my life and see what is truly important. Do I stay focused? Do we, do we, are we heading in the right direction? Are people being saved? Are people being baptized? Are people joining the church? Is the gospel being preached? I mean, you look at the, and you have to make a decision that you're convinced by that and say, we're convinced. We're convinced. And you put yourself under that obedience. And he uses the word submission, that word. You see it, submit there? And submit, that is, to give way, to yield your life in such a way that you believe that it's not coming from me, but it's coming from God. Why? Because watch this. The pastor puts himself under the word of God, just like everybody else, and says, it's not my brother, it's my sister, it's me, oh God. And if you'll change me, you can change us. Now watch this. He says, Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. What's my responsibility as your pastor? I watch for your soul. You watching by internet. I watch for your soul. You're a member here. You, I'm watching. Now look, I know there are people that aren't here today. For whatever reason, we've got 40 plus over at the uh, retreat. <clears throat> but there are some that are members here that I mean, I've never even met them. You can't find them with a Geiger counter. I mean, they're gone. I mean, I don't know where they're at. And I've got to give an account for them. And I stand before God. Look at what he says. Look at what the text says. Here it is. He says, they watch over your soul as they, that's pastors, that must give account. I've got to give an account. That they may do it with joy and not grief. For that's unprofitable for you. Stand before God one day. Shane, you pastored over at Maysville Baptist Church. Yes, sir, I did. What about O.D. Witt David? He sat right there on the front row. I mean, he's there week in and week out. The only time he didn't come, Lord, was when he was sick. I mean, he, you know, he comes with one lung. He's the one-legged church member. I mean, he comes. He's faithful, faithful, faithful. What about O. John Adams? John Adams, God, you know him. You, you, you raised him up from his deathbed. He is here. He is here. The desire of his heart was, I got one word for John Adams, faithful. What about so-and-so? I, I've never met them, God. I, I, they, they don't come to church. They never came. What about so-and-so? Watch this. Take your Bibles. Look, look right here at the text. I'm almost done. This is it. This is the closing part. He says that they may not do that they may do it with joy and not grief. You see that word grief there? You know what that word grief means? It is a it's a by definition, it's one of sighing, to sigh. It's to do this. Now here's the question I have for you. When I stand before God as your pastor and I give an account, will I give it on joy or will I give it on grief? For that is unprofitable for you. And then look at what he does next. He, he moves to the area of prayer in verse 18. And this is, he, he's closing this out. 
And I can't imagine, I mean, he's thinking about this. He's thinking about, I've got to stand before God and give an account to all these people that pushed up against me, that, yeah, yeah, and they, they weren't for us. They weren't, and I've got to give an account of all this. And, 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 and here's what I need, church. I need for you that make my life a joy. Pray for us. Pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience and in all things willing to live honestly. And then he goes on to say, but I beseech you rather to do this that I may be restored to you sooner. He says, I want to come to you guys that are faithful. And that would be my prayer. Please pray that these, these next week, the months of December, would go quickly because I want to get to you a whole lot sooner. And then here's the last one, and, and the time is gone. Here's number four. He moves from Christian conduct to a Christian closing. And he just does two things. And you can take, take note here if you'd like. The writer offers a request in verse 20 and 21. And then you see his desire in verse 22 through 25. So there's a request. And then there's a desire. His request is this. Verse 20. He says, Now the God of all peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you mature. You see it there? That's his request. I, this is what I'm asking God for you, that you will be made perfect. The word perfect means mature, that you'll grow up and you'll stop yayaying over things that don't matter for the gospel's sake. That you'd be mature in every good work to do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Ever and ever. Amen. That's his, that's his request. And then here's his desire. And... I beseech you, I'm begging you, brothers and sisters. Here's what he says. Don't miss this. Suffer the word of exhortation. I would underline that. Suffer the word of exhortation. For I have written a letter unto you in few words. He said, I didn't write you a long letter. I didn't write you something long. Now, I couldn't hardly get through it in 10 weeks. But he says, I didn't write it long. But I want you to suffer with it. That means wrestle with it. And, and here's what I would ask you to do by way of application today. Wrestle with what I've said unto you. Wrestle with the fact that I've challenged you in the area of Christian counsel to love each other, to be sympathetic towards one another, to have a healthy and a marriage through Jesus Christ, to be satisfied with what you have, to respect those that have gone before us in the name of Jesus. And I give you this Christian creed. To wrestle with is what Paul says. Wrestle with this creed. Accept pure doctrine. Reject legalism. Embrace Jesus who is our altar wrestle with the fact that our Christian conduct really does matter praise God for what he's given thank God for what he's given let your actions demonstrate what he's given let your words speak about how he's given obey your pastor pray for your pastor and then he says that is my heart's desire and I want you to wrestle with it and then he says this know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty. He's on go. He's, he's uh, full, fast, and ready to come to you. And he says, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute them that have the rule over you. Remember when he said that? He's practicing what he preaches. Tell your pastors I said hello. And all the saints. He says, they of Italy say hello. And then he says this, grace be with you all. Amen. He ends it with God's grace. I, I don't know of a thing that ends a better sermon or a better letter than grace. God says, he says, above everything, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, may God's grace rest on you.
That's my prayer for you, that God's grace would rest on you. Let's bow for prayer. Maybe you're here today and maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. I pray that God's grace would rest on you. And today, if you'd like to be born again, if you'd like to be saved, from your heart to God's heart, why don't you cry out to the Lord and say something like this? Say, Lord Jesus. That's right, right where you're sitting. Say, Lord Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. And this uh, morning, I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me, to come into my life and save me. I will live for you in Jesus' name.